people are dying from the hunger, from the cold, from the starvation, from the bombings. Literally, they are dying from the humiliation that they are facing. All of us here are facing this humiliation. All of us are facing all kind of death. I'm Venetia Rainey, and this is Battle Lines. Regardless of who stands with Israel, Israel will fight until this battle is won. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. I've made wartime decisions. I know the choices are never clear or easy for the leadership. I just find bombs and I find dead people, but it's a really scary thing for me. On this episode of Battle Lines, we'll talk to our Middle East correspondent in Jerusalem, Natalia Vasilyeva, about ongoing ceasefire talks and whether a deal is really as close as Joe Biden has claimed. Then we hear from Jumana Shaheen, a mother of one who is stuck in central Gaza and facing the hardest decision of her life. Should she try and escape with her family or stay behind to help her people? It's March 1st, 2024. We start in Israel, where intense diplomacy is underway to see if a deal can be reached with Hamas. Thanks for joining us, Natalia. Maybe you can start by telling us where we're at with the ceasefire talks. Obviously, earlier this week, we heard Biden made make a really big promise that a plan would be in place by Monday. Is that looking likely? Hi, Venetian. Hi, everyone. Yeah, that was quite a bombshell statement that I would say uh, took by surprise both people in Israel and Hamas. And both parties were... Quick to say that, quick to pour some cold water on that, saying that there are still details to hammer out. What we know so far is the deal on the table would see a 40-day pause in fighting and a gradual release of Israeli hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. Biden specifically mentioned next week, presumably meaning Ramadan, the holy month for Uh, Muslims. And it's been discussed here in Israel and in the Muslim world for a long time that it would be, he would damage Israel's position uh, even further if it were to carry on with fighting in Gaza during Ramadan. And typically in the past, whatever conflicts Israel was involved in, they tried to not to do anything during Ramadan. Again, that's a very tight deadline because Ramadan is just 10 days away. It's next Sunday. Just last night, Israeli public broadcaster Khan reported that the talks are ongoing. Israel and Hamas delegations are in Qatar right now. Sources of the Israeli public broadcaster said that they anticipate that the deal could be reached by Ramadan, but it's still it's still very unclear, obviously. There can be last moment hiccups, as we have seen in the past. Just in the past couple of months, I remember reporting on a, on other rounds of negotiations where it sounded like a deal was within a touching distance and it never happened. So yeah, we just have to wait and see. What are the major sticking points? What are the places that they, Israel and Hamas just can't find agreement on? Well, the main sticking point is the length of the ceasefire because Hamas would obviously want a um, lasting truce. They uh, would like Israel to um, stop fighting completely. Israel insists that it still has um, work to do in uh, Gaza. Um, It insists that it needs to conduct a ground operation in Rafah, 
and eliminate the last pockets of resistance and as they hope locate the Hamas leaders hiding in Rafah. So that's the main sticking point and what we have seen in the past couple of months. Both parties have been trying to bridge difference. Israel has offered, has been offering longer ceasefires. Hamas was not agreeing to anything that would indicate that Israel would just use this time to regroup and, and get going. But again, it just depends on, on how exhausted the Hamas fighters are and how much of a break or how badly they need this break. Obviously, if, if they are, I would imagine that they would agree. They would take anything. They would take like 40 days. Definitely be better than nothing. And what do we know about the hostages still in Gaza? There's 134, is that right? Yeah, there's 134. To be honest, we still don't know how many of them are alive. Israeli officials constantly update the number of hostages for which they have had a sign of life or any intelligence reliably uh, telling them that those hostages are alive. The last figure I've seen was 101. They are definitely sure that 101 Israelis are still alive and there are questions about the remaining two dozens. Say that for the Israeli public, because I know there have been ongoing demonstrations, they, a lot of people would be happy with any sort of deal in order to get all the hostages back? Or do the Israeli public feel like there are certain lines that they wouldn't cross, like we're hearing from Netanyahu? Yeah, I would say with every week, the rallies in support of the hostages are getting, the crowds are, are getting bigger, the demands are getting more desperate. We have seen tents being pitched outside Netanyahu's residence in here in Jerusalem and elsewhere. What I've been hearing recently is people are saying, we want any deal. We want a deal that would, we want any deal that would make sure that someone walks out of Gaza, even if it's one person, even one person's life is worth it. So people are getting desperate. But again, there's a war going on in Gaza. And obviously, that goal of releasing hostages seems to be clashing with the Israeli cabinet's goals in Gaza, goals for, for the war in Gaza, which was started partly not only to retaliate to the October 7th attack, but also to release the hostages and that the release of hostages via this war is definitely far off at this point. Yahoo saying this week that the Rafa invasion is going ahead no matter what happens with the ceasefire talks, it will just the ceasefire talks will just delay the invasion. They are going in. So it feels like he's already setting some very clear red lines for negotiations. I wonder how much more difficult that makes it. Netanyahu so far has been very steadfast on the Rafa invasion. He has faced pressure even from the United States that has been uh, fairly, I would say, permissive on, on how Israel uses American military aid. The United States has indicated that it would not like a ground to see a ground operation in Grand Rafa. They've made several indications. There were draft resolutions at the UN Security Council warning against such a move. There was a draft US resolution that was never floated, but it was drafted in, in any case, saying that such an operation would endanger too many civilian lives and it would be expedient that it were, if it be postponed or scrapped altogether. At the same time, American officials made it clear that they would like to see an evacuation plan for Rafa if, if Israel does go ahead. Questions, of course, have been asked, asked where do people go? Because as we know, the ground operation in, in Gaza started from the north and Israeli forces have been moving gradually from the north to the south until they pretty much reached Rafah. And Rafah remains the only area in uh, Gaza 
obviously affected by by airstrikes, but has it has been largely spared the massive fighting and devastation we've seen elsewhere. And the Palestinians in Rafa basically have nowhere to go. So the question is, where, where do they go? And we just heard on Monday that the IDF has presented an evacuation plan to the World Cabinet. Strangely enough, details have not been reported. What I heard last week, I think, was officials in Egypt informally suggesting that Israel apparently showed them a proposal to get civilians out of Rafa and place them in some sort of a tent uh, city in one of the corners of Gaza close to the Mediterranean Sea, just outside the city. Again, how feasible it is, it's a big question because I think right now we have something like one for one four point million people and they're already living in very cramped conditions. So it obviously it's not very clear where, where they're going to go. And also at the same time, I think a couple of weeks ago, there were reports about Egypt making some preparations for a possible ground operation in Rafa. There were some satellite images from the border of Egypt and Gaza showing that Egypt might be building some sort of an enclosure to allow civilians in from Gaza and not allow them into Egypt as such. So, yeah, I would say we don't know the details of that evacuation proposal, but it looks like the IDF is at least doing what the Americans have asked them to do. How feasible that proposal is obviously remains to be seen. Yeah, I think Gazans are facing some really difficult choices now, many families being having been displaced three, four, five, six times. And we'll be speaking to someone who's in Deir al-Bala later in this episode, who is facing those sorts of difficult choices. I'm just seeing that this morning there was an incident south of Gaza City where dozens, it looks like upwards of 70 Palestinians were killed by Israeli fire while they were waiting for aid. Do you know any more of that? And, and how common are these sorts of incidents? Yeah, I think there was another deadly incident at another this aid distribution point, I would say two weeks ago. I honestly don't remember the details. But from what I'm hearing, this incident definitely appears to be some of the deadliest in recent days. Uh, health officials in Gaza have already confirmed that more than 70 Palestinians have been killed and over 200 people wounded. They were waiting for deliveries of food aid this morning south of Gaza City. And obviously, whether it was targeted or not, it looks like there was a large crowd of people and yeah, casualties are likely to be higher in that case. I mean, we talk about the sort of you know looming deadline of Ramadan, but there's also a sort of other looming deadline of how a bad the food security situation has become in Gaza, particularly in northern Gaza. We've had some very stark warnings from the UN about how a quarter, I think, of the population are one step away from famine. And we see these scenes when there are trucks going in or aid drops by the air of people really just rushing to grab whatever they can. It looks like a desperate situation from outside. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And Israel has been under pressure to ramp up aid supplies at the same time, we have seen the disintegration of supply links through UNRWA, the United Nations Agency for Palestinian Refugees that came under fire over a scandal, possibly exposing links of some of its members to Hamas. And what we have seen in, in, in the past weeks was Israel accusing aid of organization of not going, not doing a good job of d- delivering aid to Gaza. 
Whereas aid organizations have been saying that there is not enough infrastructure on the ground for, for them to do that. And some of the routes are still too dangerous. And we are getting recurrent reports about food trucks, aid coming on, on, under fire. And, uh, and it speaks a lot that it's not for the lack of trying that, that a lot of aid doesn't reach Gaza. Sometimes aid deliveries are facing obstacles just as they were about to enter. They are subject to lengthy checks. And sometimes they are people who are delivering it are under physical danger and aid agencies have to cancel deliveries or, you know, rely to airdrops. Obviously, there's not much you can deliver that way. So that's one of the reasons why there's not enough. Aid coming in, and one of the hope, um, one of the hopes for the ceasefires that we talked about earlier is that uh, the ceasefire would allow for a significantly larger number of aid deliveries and aid trucks to enter Gaza if if that ceasefire happens. What's going on with the Palestinian government? Obviously, it's split between Hamas and the um, Fatah, and we have Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. We've had some significant sort of reshuffling resignations this week. Can you tell us a bit more? We've been hearing a lot from the United States that it stands for a Palestinian state, that it would like to see the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah play a l- larger role in post-war settlement for Gaza. And all of the while, they've been talking about a revitalized Palestinian Authority. And I think until uh, this week wasn't really clear what they mean by that. So I think we just got the first of indication what it actually means. On Monday, the Prime Minister of the Palestinian Authority, Mohammed Shtaya, offered his resignation. It was done in a very amicable way. What has been clear is that Steyer has apparently been asked to resign uh, to bring in a new government made up of technocrats that would somehow answer to this demand from the United States of a new revitalized Palestinian authority. We also heard about possible candidates for the new prime minister. One of the people named is Mohammed Mustafa, chairman of the board of the Palestinian Investment Fund. He has a reputation of a a technocrat with wide experience and expertise in economic affairs. And that's not, I would say that's not a coincidence right now because the Palestinian Authority is facing an acute economic crisis caused by the war in Gaza in many ways, starting from Israel freezing tax, the transfer of tax revenues to the Palestinian Authority, to Israel barring over 160,000 Palestinian workers from you know going to work for to Israel every day, so the Palestinian Authority is hurting a lot right now. So it would definitely make sense to bringing a new face and someone who can hopefully help deal with the very acute economic crisis. Definitely, it, it takes more than one one person, but it seems to be at least the first step towards what the United States were saying: a revitalized Palestinian Authority that would try to deal with corruption and economic troubles that has been crippling this area for a very long time. Thank you so much. That's Natalia Vasilyeva, our Jerusalem correspondent. Thanks for joining us. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now to Gaza, where innocent civilians are increasingly facing a choice between being bombed or starved to death as the humanitarian situation becomes increasingly dire. Jumana Shaheen is living in central Gaza in Deir al-Balah with her two-year-old daughter, husband and family-in-law. She spoke to me about what life is like there right now. Hi everyone, it's uh, Jumana Shaheen from Gaza Strip. I'm uh, 28 years old. I work as a project coordinator assistant before this aggression started. Everything just stopped, my work, my life, my days, everything. And also I'm a volunteer for the ACS organization. It's a INGO actually, and um, now we're focusing with our work on the relief and the humanitarian field because Gaza needs a lot here. Actually, now I'm in Deir al-Balah city. This city is in the in the middle area of the Gaza Strip. And the city that the, the Israeli army keeps telling people to come to here, in Deir al-Balah and Rafah, another city. But I evacuated for more than six times, actually, from my home. It's in Gaza City in the north. And here I can explain the situation because it's disastrous. I really can't imagine that this city could crowd it in this, in this way because it's not big. We are more than 25 people gathering together here. We're trying to share the food, if it's available even. We're trying to share our emotions together. We're trying to support each other as much as we can. For me personally, I don't know any of them before we gathered here. I feel like it's so strange to feel these emotions and to live this life after you used to stay in your comfortable home, you have your work, you have your friends, your your people, you have everything before this genocide just started and then we have nothing actually. This situation is not safe. It's very dangerous. I don't know why this night is like kind of quiet. It's... <laughs> It's very weird and it's terrifying, by the way. It's not because we didn't use to, to stay for these hours without hearing any massive explosions around us. Because, because always, always we are hearing massive explosions and many targets around me here in this house. And also because sometimes I, I change my place to another place and also there. The place around me was just tried completely a house um, is next to me it's just like far from my place some meters less than 10 meters it was five uh, floors at the beginning of the war they bombed it completely on the people's heads i'm talking about 50 people were killed in one bomb next to me 
directly. And when I changed my place, another house next to me, far from me, only just like some meters destroyed and bombed and four floors destroyed completely on people's heads. Uh, I'm talking here about 26 people were killed in, in one bomb. I'm talking about massacres, actually. I'm, I'm shocked. Using this way every day and like passing next to the place that people were killed, it's really something very hard because you know that someone is killed here and you still see their blood until now. I swear, I still see their blood on the ground between the stones. It's an evidence that there is no safe place in the whole of this trip. This is Deir al-Balah in the middle area that people are evacuating until now and have been evacuating since the beginning of the war. People in the north are dying from the, the starvation, the severe starvation. People in the south in Rafah are dying from the bombings. People in the middle area are dying from both. They are dying from the bombings. They are dying from the high prices of the goods and the black markets because there is no incomes for people. People cannot buy anything. People cannot have any food in their tents. People are dying from the hunger, from the cold, from the starvation, from the bombings. Literally, they are dying from the humiliation that they are facing. All of us here are facing this humiliation. All of us are facing all kinds of death. I don't understand how the world can keep watching us as they are watching a movie, a horrible movie, without doing anything. I really cannot understand this anymore. This genocide is happening here. It's not only from the Israeli army. It's from the, 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 the whole of the world. The USA still insists to use the veto and still insists to tell the people, the world, that there is no genocide in Gaza. This is a genocide. They are keep telling people to evacuate to Deir al-Balah and they are bombing Deir al-Balah at the same time. They are telling people to go to Rafah because it's the safest place in Gaza and they are bombing Rafah. They are bombing everywhere. From the whole strip, I can't go to another city because it's dangerous, because they tell people to evacuate from their homes, leaving everything and go out your home. We want to bomb your home. Just leave it and go outside it. This matter is about the whole world. The suffering, it's not only because we're bombing or we're under fire or we're under attack. They are trying to help in the most sarcastic way ever. They're airdropping food on the beach. We here have some aid from the trucks that is entering 
from the border, but what about the north? Or you have to take the permission also from the Israeli army. Every single thing is going and working only when they take the permission from the Israeli army. Egypt, Jordan, USA, everyone who wants to do anything for Gaza, they can't do anything without the Israeli army permission. Is it fair? And the answer is completely no, because there is no justice in this word. All of us have this question in our minds. Till when we have to face all of this? Till when we have to keep asking the world to do anything to stop this genocide? I'm watching my people in the north are dying. Even when they opened the gate to the Palestinian here in Gaza, to leave, to evacuate, to flee, to escape, to whatever they want to, to just like name this process, they open the gate for money, not for our lives. They open the border for the Egyptian coordination. Each one must pay $5,000 to escape from this genocide. Is it fair? Really, is it fair? It's not fair. Personally, as Jumana, I refused the concept of leaving from the beginning of this war, since day one. I refused this idea because I believe that people here in Gaza and Gaza still needs, still needs the people who can give, the people who can support, and the people who can work in the humanitarian and relief field. We can't think about ourselves, only about ourselves. We have to think about the city and its people because they are our people. They are my people. But actually, my family and lots of family here can't bear anymore. They can't feel that it's like... It's going to be a solution or something will happen, something good will happen. They are frustrated. We are isolated. We are depressed completely and literally. Some people are like patient more than the others I know. That's why I feel like I mentioned for you that I don't support this idea because I can feel myself that I can bear more. But my family, for example, decided to leave. They can't bear anymore. We have three critical cases here in my family. They have to take their medicines. And they are late for four months. And now for five months, they didn't take their medicine. They have Crohn's and disease, and they have to take their medicine. They are in danger. Many families are in the same situation. Many families are suffering from the situation. I can't describe the situation anymore. I'm trying for you, for many people who are asking me about the situation, but sometimes you have to feel the situation, not to talk about the situation. You have to come to see the tents, to, to, to see people, 
trying to eat, trying to feel the simplest way to live, trying to feed their children and their family in the simplest way and simplest element that exists because they can't buy, they can't buy the food. We are counting days, we are repeating our news, our description for the situation day by day. For what? For nothing. People around the world does, like, do nothing. I know many of the people, not the governments, the people, the people are with us. I appreciate this. I appreciate their support. I appreciate their words. I appreciate their efforts. I appreciate their love. But then what? Till when that I have to bear this situation, that I have to stay and leave my daughter, live this situation. This is unacceptable. This is unbelievable. And this is cannot be fair for me and for my daughter and for my family. When my family decided to have the GoFundMe link, as I mentioned for you, I personally refused this idea. But then if they succeeded to gather and to collect this amount of money that they have to pay to the Egyptian coordination, $5,000 for each one of us. We are nine members that we have to go outside. If they are succeeded, if they succeeded to do this, eventually I will leave with them. I will leave in spite of me. I will leave in spite of everything around me. I will leave in spite of my inside, my inside wants to stay here, wants to help more, wants to give more, wants to give the relief for, for people, for my people. But then what should I do with my daughter? Should I leave? Should, should, I, should I leave it, leave her here to stay in, in this genocide or to choose my people? I can't think about this matter anymore because this is killing me every single day every single minute i supported my family having this link with my connections it's not only about my decision it's also about their decision it's their life not only my life but what about taking this decision in the hardest time ever leaving your country your your home only because you want to stay alive. This is not easy. This is the hardest decision that I've ever taken. This is unfair. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from around the world, subscribe to The Telegraph or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website where you can follow updates on Israel and Gaza as they come in throughout the day, including insight from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it really helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to our sister podcast, Ukraine the Latest. Battle Lines is produced by David Dagahi and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.